from digitiki.com And now ladies and gentlemen here is your host Herb Albert and the T1 Brass Thank you and good evening ladies and gentlemen The song you just heard is called With a little help from our friends and that's really most appropriate for tonight because you're going to meet some of my very good friends who all have one thing in common good music Welcome to the Quiet Village. for another visit here at the Quiet Village. Glad to have you. I'm your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from digitiki.com, broadcasting in the heart of the Quiet Village. And I've got my Mai Tai here, and I have a very, very special episode that you are really going to enjoy. Joining me in the Quiet Village for this visit is the family of the late, great Julius Wechter. Now, I'm sure some of you remember that name, and some of you are thinking, that sounds familiar. Well, I knew Julius Wechter as the vibes player for Martin Denny, who took over after Arthur Lyman when he left the band, and as the band leader of the Baja Marimba Band. But there was so much more I didn't know, and I'll bet you didn't either. Julius Wechter was on the ground floor of the creation of not one, but two iconic sounds in American popular music. Exotica and that Tijuana Brass sound with Herb Alper. He was also part of the Wrecking Crew, a group of Los Angeles studio musicians responsible for recording so many hit songs that it would take the entire show just to list the names of the songs. He was a playwright, hit songwriter, uh, arranger, film composer, uh, and even mental health therapist, believe it or not. I learned all of this because I got a rare opportunity to meet with the family of Julius Wechter, his two sons, Jerry and David, and his wonderful wife, Sissy. So this is truly a very special episode of The Quiet Village. We'll be going a little over the hour length today because the interview was just so full of great stuff. Uh, the Wechters were gracious enough to invite me into their home for an afternoon of delightful talk about Julius, and I learned so much more about this amazing musician than I ever expected. Get your Mai Tais in hand. Here we go. We're meeting with the family of Julius Wechter here at the Quiet Village. Okay, so I am here with the Wechter family. I'm with David. David. Sissy. Jerry. All right. The wife and the brother, uh, brothers, the sons of the late, great Julius Wechter. And we're here talking about everything from that. So from that whole era, because I found out that he did an awful lot of stuff that I didn't know on top of that. But he was the uh, vibraphonist who took over after Arthur Lyman. He took over right after Arthur yes, Lyman? Yes, he did. That's fantastic. He had one week to learn the book. And it was amazing. One week. It was it was amazing because you know the show. I'm sure you've seen clips mm -hmm. of them playing. Mm -hmm. It's like ten instruments and so many songs and going from one to the other. And I don't know how he did it. Because playing percussion, he played ten instruments. You mean? Yes, just him. <laughs> yes. That I can't imagine learning all that stuff in one week. Yep, that's what it was just absolutely an incredible chapter in our lives. Do you Is, want to hear you, how we got the job? I do. I want to hear that. Okay. Well, we were living in North Hollywood. Julius always wanted to be a full-time musician, but he was only able to do it on weekends and, you know, bar mitzvahs and dances, UCLA, whatever, because we were married. We had a child who was almost a year and a half. I was pregnant with another one. The phone rang, and it was, I was listening to one end only, Julius's end of the conversation, and I hear him say, no, I couldn't possibly do it because, you know, I have a, a child, and I have a, another one on the way, and I'm, we're going to school, and I'm working, and 
he hung up the phone and I said, what was that about? And he said um, somebody had called for Marty to ask him to join the group. And I said, get back on the phone and say yes. <laughs> I mean, it was, as it turns out, it was a chance of a lifetime. He was only offered a six-week contract. Really? That was the, There was no guarantee that we were going to be there longer than six weeks. We sold everything we had, got on a plane. Which and, wasn't much. No, <laughs> it wasn't much, but, you know, we just packed what we could into suitcases and flew to Hawaii with only a guarantee of six weeks. And, well, we could have stayed with Marty forever, but we made up our minds that when David started kindergarten, we were not going to have them jumping around to different schools. We would stay that long, and that's what we did. We were there until the June uh, that he turned five. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Duke Kahanamoku's on the beach at Waikiki. At this time, it is with great pride and great pleasure that the Duke presents in person on Liberty Records the exotic sounds of Martin Denny. starting salary by any chance? I remember exactly. He started at 175 a week wow. and immediately had to take a cut to 150. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And the amazing thing was, especially now that we you know traveled with other other bands and, and uh, saw how things worked, that no arrangements were made for us when we traveled. Our base was Hawaii, but I would say almost nine months out of the year we traveled from city to city. And it's not like we had the money to do that. It was owing money to, to Marty. Marty would lay out the money for the plane fare because we went everywhere and never, ever stayed behind, whereas most of the other wives did. Mm -hmm. But we would get to a city. I remember specifically arriving in Detroit in the middle of the night freezing cold winter, two babies, and no place to stay. It's not like they had booked a, a room for us or anything. We would oh, get in a God. cab and say, the job is at such and such an intersection, take us to the closest motel. And that's, that's how we lived wow. for three and a half years. It's not as so. glamorous as you think of, like the lifestyle where you've got the suite at the... At the yeah. Well, I, just to interject, Dad was 23, yeah. and my mom was 22, with a child and a baby on the way. And then in the day job that I guess my dad was reluctant to leave, although I know he didn't enjoy it, was he was working in the uh, punching computer cards for Lockheed Aircraft, which was not his life's ambition. <laughs> and uh, But obviously my mom gets credit for the push to... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good, good for you for telling him to take that gig. There was no way I was going to let him pass up an opportunity. So, I got I got to ask the details. Like, what what was it like? Other than that, I mean, like. Martin Denny and and that group the people who would uh, come to that because that was it was amazing I'm sure you know all the guys in the band um, I I only know their names from the jackets from the reading the the record really? jackets there was Harvey Ragsdale was the bass player and he was married and had three little children and and then um, Augie was married also and had children and. Um, he did all the percussion and bird calls. He did a couple of records himself that, that Martin Denny produced, yeah. I remember all those album covers like you do, too. Yeah. And I think those were probably equal to the sound in terms of the popularity, because mm -hmm. those covers are just... They, they don't do covers dramatic. like that anymore. It's like going to a movie just to look at the album cover. Mm -hmm. It just takes you into a fantasy world. Won't quite match the popularity of Herb's biggest album cover, though, mm -hmm. with Cream. 
that probably goes down in history as the most famous album cover. Probably so. That's an, an iconic it is. cover, and it's a brilliant idea, too. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I can tell you that even even as a prepubescent child, I remember seeing oh, that yeah, going, that. wow, that, that's an amazing cover. Every teenage boy went out and bought that record. And old man and middle-aged <laughs> yeah. man. That's right. Frankie Kim was the drummer. Mm-hmm. And um, he was also married and had a little girl. And then uh, Marty. And Marty's wife did travel with him, but of course they had money. And so... Their arrangements were made, and mm-hmm. they they did live the you know a more glamorous life. <laughs> and two things I remember: one, I believe Harvey Ragsdale, the bass player, weighed about four hundred pounds. He was heavy, huge guy. And I believe I, well, we, my mom conveniently skipped to the point when my older brother got into kindergarten. Something else happened during that era, which is that I was born there. So my first uh, my fifteen minutes of fame came in the womb, actually because the story is that my dad was in the middle of a concert and someone came running up while he was playing saying that Sissy's in the hospital giving birth. So he jumped off the stage and went to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Absolutely. He didn't finish the gig. Huh? <laughs> That's why I had to take the cut and pay. <laughs> so how many countries do you guys tour? We didn't. We only toured the United Just States. Just the United States? Yes, only the United States, but everywhere in the United States. Yeah. And tell you how delighted we are to be here in Alaska. This is our very first appearance here. And uh, we hope we have a lot of fun tonight. That first selection was from one of our very first Liberty LPs called Exotica, Busy Port. Right now, something a little on the exotic, on the jungle side, is called Bakoa. of different states with Martin Denny. You didn't realize that? No. Our whole lives. That's what I, we did I, for three and a half years after you were born. I just you didn't baby. realize that it was all over the country. Oh my God. We would, and no consideration was taken to what it would cost or how inconvenient it might be. I remember going from, from Florida to Detroit, an 80 degree <laughs> difference in temperature. <laughs> and you were both sick when we got to Detroit, I remember, and we had to call it. We looked in the phone book to find a doctor. I mean, we had no resources at all. Oh gosh. Well, I, one thing I'll tell you, my mom and my brother are by far the better historians of my dad's musical career. I have one era that where I'm the expert, which is three years where I went on the road with my dad as the... Uh, Rody with the Baja Marimba band his second time around. We'll get there, but okay. other than that, these guys have much more of the entire picture in the jigsaw puzzle. Well, David was only five when we left the group, so he, he doesn't have that. But I he don't does know things like research his podcast sites. <laughs> that is true. The other thing that's kind of cool, just to put everything in historical perspective, is that the year I was born, I believe Hawaii was still a territory, it wasn't even a state yet in the country. Really? Yeah. Not that this is about me. I no, but that's <laughs> the start of that era. That's right. Yeah. It's a very important time in Hawaii's history. Yeah. So I really, I have to back up a little bit more okay. to tell you about the trip to Hawaii. The, the first the time. The actual flight to Hawaii. <laughs> so we had, I think he was supposed to start in a month and we sold the very little that we had. David's right, we were very poor. And um, Julius had been playing on a portable Deegan vibraphone. His parents sacrificed, and somehow it makes me teary still, got him a gorgeous new Deegan vibraphone. Everything else, I guess, Marty supplied. I mean, probably Julius brought his own special effects case, but, you know, all of the bongos, congos, everything, because Julius played all of it as well as as the um, others. So he his his job in the band wasn't just vibes. Then. No, it was percussion it too. It was percussion too. Oh. Anyway, so we left for Hawaii. Like I said, David was a year and a half. Jerry was in my tummy. I was five months pregnant, and I had never flown. No. I'd never been anywhere outside of California. Um, 
and it was in those days anywhere from an eight to twelve hour flight, depending on what airline. Mm -hmm. It was a propeller, yeah, plane, airplane. Yeah. And <clears throat> and let's not forget that in those days there were no um, disposable diapers or plastic <laughs> bottles. No. I mean, I was carrying twelve glass bottles filled with formula and <laughs> wow. it, it was quite an adventure. So we get on the plane and we flew eight hours and, or seven and the last hour we hit a hurricane that was so strong that we were literally, we had a 500 foot free fall drop. Wow. Everyone, all, I'd say 90% of the people on the plane threw up <laughs> in that moment. I David, <laughs> David, who was a year and a half, was sitting on Julius's lap facing him. Wow threw up all over Julius. I, we hadn't met Martin Bennett, you understand. And, um, and I was just like on the edge of my seat with my face as close to the air vent as I could because it was so awful on the plane. Finally, after circling for an hour, an extra hour, we landed. And I have to set the scene for you. Martin Denny arrived exactly the, the way you would think of it, like from South Pacific. He was we're all dressed in white with a Panama hat, his arms filled with lays for us. And we get off the plane and it was disgusting. Yeah. I mean, we were disgusting. <laughs> he put his arms out and was kind of backed away. He had booked a hotel room for us our apartment for one night. Mm -hmm. We got to the apartment, didn't know, we didn't know our way around anywhere, we didn't have anything. There was a sliver of soap. All three of us had to shower with this little sliver of soap. And that was how it started. Welcome to paradise. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I mean, yeah, here, let's go to Hawaii. And, and, it, was, <laughs> and it was December 7th. It was. It was December mm, 7th, oh, wow. so it was Pearl Harbor Day, and so it was a significant day in Hawaii. 1958? And, mm, no, if Jerry was born in 58, it was 57. Oh, right. 57, mm -hmm. okay. But you know, Marty was very lucky to find someone that, you know, oh. at age 23 who could just come there and just pick right up for Arthur Lyman. And if I can ask a question on your behalf, I'm learning a lot about playing <laughs> this. I didn't realize that Dad had never met Marty, so kind of backing up, how is it that Marty learned about what he did? And, and that's, a, was, that's a good question. Was confident enough to just hire him. I can't remember the name of the man that he called, but whoever it was, he called, you know, to scout. And um, that person knew Earl Hatch, who was the most famous marimba teacher in this area. Everybody studied with him. Even, you know, Larry Bunker and all of those people would take refresher from him because he was that well known. And, and uh, Earl Hatch recommended Julius. Wow. So. Yeah, it was all done over the phone, no auditions, no no meetings at all. So you guys spent all the time in Hawaii. So Hawaii, um, well, you, I mean, you spent your home base was, right. in, was in Hawaii. And the reason he left the band was because you were going to school, right? right. You were going to start school. That was it. Huh? Mm -hmm. And you moved back to... LA. Move back to LA. I often wonder what my life would be like if we had stayed in Hawaii. It'd be a completely different life. I'm not saying it'd be better. Certainly. You'd be a champion surfer. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I didn't love it there. No? No. We were fair-skinned, Jerry and I especially. So the sun, you know, we couldn't stay out in the sun very long. We were very poor even there. I mean, Things were so expensive, and mm -hmm. you know we weren't making enough money, and uh, so it wasn't a luxurious life at all. 
but and and it got too small for me. I mean, I was not used to living on an island. You know, this is not really in order at all, but um, I, it, I've always found it fascinating that Marty had, I can recall, let's see, either four or five uh, vibes players, and every one of them became fairly well known in their own right. Arthur, of course, mm -hmm. left because he had a hit record and, and was doing well, had his own group. Julius went on to be with Tijuana Brass and the Baja Mirma Band. And following him was Haygood Hardy, who wrote a fabulous song. It's called Canadian Sunset or something like that. Just mm -hmm. a really wonderful song. And then um, Tommy Vig, who I, I don't remember exactly what he did, but he, he also had some notoriety and um it helped to be in his band too boy he sold so many records martin denny just i mean you go to any any thrift store or any garage sale and somebody's got a martin denny record just as they've got they've got a herb alpert record sure there's always a little thing that tugs at me when i meet somebody and that go for whatever reason go through the story or tell them who my dad was and if they never heard of the Tijuana Brass, I know that they're like 39 and younger, 44, whatever the cutoff is, because we, they were huge. What's oh, fascinating right. is it's it's coming back around now. It's a huge group of, of people who are in their 30s and younger who are into all this retro stuff and they rabidly collect all those old records. So. Well, you know, you say the Tijuana Brass, of course, sold a lot of records. I don't know whether you know or not. It was, I don't think anyone else has ever done this, but there was a point at which they had five of the top ten LPs on the charts. Five out of ten. That was during the days of the Beatles and Elvis. And, I mean, because that, that's who filled in the other spots, but Herb hmm. actually had five out of ten. At once? At one time. That's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. That is and, incredible. And then probably on each one of those, or most of them, Dad had a song he wrote. On almost everyone. So after after Martin Denny, you guys moved back, and then how long was that before he started the... Did he found the uh, Tijuana Brass, or how did that... Uh, I'm not familiar with how it all... We mm -hmm. came back, Julius um, broke into the studio... Uh, life mm -hmm. and which was not easy because there were really good players here but he started out by filling in for Emil Richards and Larry Bunker and people like that who would take on more work than they could handle mm -hmm. and when the records overlapped Julius would finish a session for them or start the next session for them and then once people heard him play they started calling him and so he was on are you familiar with the Wrecking Crew? Oh, yes. Well, he was part of the Wrecking Crew. Really? And, um, so he was on every hit record, almost every hit record from that era. They would do four sessions a day. They'd go from Sonny and Cher to the Beach Boys to the Righteous Brothers. They, same guys on every record. I didn't know that. He was part of the Wrecking Crew. Yes, he was. That's, that's a pretty iconic group of people. It who did basically, yeah, like you say, almost every song of, of that era. My goodness, I had no idea. And so then uh, Herb formed the Tijuana Brass and called Julius, wanted him to be on The Lonely Bull, which was the first record. And then Herb was very loyal slash superstitious. <laughs> and so he wanted him on every record because it was such a big hit. Yeah. And, uh, and then it was Herb's idea to do an offshoot. The brass was so popular that they knew they could make more money by starting a, an offshoot. They couldn't do all the jobs. And so that was how he asked Julius to lead uh, the Baja River Band. I don't know how it came about, but in the early days, A&M Records consisted of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, Julius Wechter and the Baja River Band, Sergio Mendez and Brazil 66, right? Well, there were a few others, Chris Montez. But that was the start. It was oh, those yeah. Three, yeah. It was definitely. Chris Montez. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there were a few others. Yeah. 
So they helped kick off that label. Oh, yeah. And then they got the Carpenters. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, my first adult record that wasn't a children's record was a Carpenter's record. Oh, Karen Carpenter, was. one of the best voices ever on uh, this earth. One Amazing. of my two favorite singers of all time. Who's the other? Mama Cass. Oh. Yeah. I loved her voice. Just love her voice. Yeah. So just going back to Martin Denny, the Martin Denny group at uh, Don the Beachcomber, can, can you just like describe what the show was like or what the crowd was like or the atmosphere, how popular it was? You how many times? How many times a week did you guys play really, when you were at, in? Oh, in, they uh, played six nights a week, two oh. or two or three shows a night. Wow! So, yeah, I mean, they knew that show backwards and forwards. I did not go that often, mm-hmm. really. I probably left you guys alone, maybe once or twice during every stay there. For, you know, we would be there for usually three months. The first time it was five months, that's when I really got island fever, but <laughs> usually it was three months and then nine months of travel and then back there for three months. Each time we had to get a different car, find a different place to live, and um, mm. then start all over again. And he was working six nights a week. Definitely. Wow. And the club was amazing. I mean, it was just so, it seemed so authentic, you know. It was drinks and pineapples and uh, hula dancers and always packed. I, yeah. I don't remember ever going there without it being a full house. This just seemed fancy from where you were coming from. Oh yeah, definitely was for us. It's, it's like Disneyland really, because you say it seemed authentic, but it wasn't. It was like, it was the white man's vision of a fantasy yeah, of right. Hawaii. Yeah. And he, I read an interview with Martin Denny, and he, or Saad, and he said it, his music was fiction. That's mm-hmm. what, it's the word he used. Really? Just kind of, you know, borrowed from jazz and from Asian and a little of this. And, and then Dad pretty quickly became, uh, I think, his chief arranger and wrote songs that are on some of the oh, Martin definitely. Denny albums. Definitely. Ah, uh, Mau Mau, is it? Yes, uh, you Backtracking again and establishing origin, we go back to the chronology of when my dad um, got involved with Herb Alpert with Kilona Brass. Mm-hmm. My mom can fill me in or correct me, but the way that my dad knew Herb is that they used to play bar mitzvahs together when they were 17 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's how they had started their relationship. That's right. Do you know um, how the next five or eight years went with them? He just kind of remembered he used to play with dad and then... I don't, I, I'm not sure, I, didn't, I know how he got back with Dad, it was through a mutual friend, Sammy Goldstein, who was a drummer, and um, it was a big source of, of uh, sadness for Sammy, because when, the, when Herb started working, you know, Sammy told him about Julius, and Julius started playing with him, and Sammy was never asked to be the drummer, which I'm sure he was. He just wasn't, you know, that that isn't what he did for a living. But he, I guess, he may have wanted to. Became very wealthy in real estate. I know that. <laughs> but anyway, Herb, you know, once he heard him play, well, well, Herb tells a story on. We did a, a benefit concert uh, three years after Julius died. We did a huge concert at the Alex Theater, and Herb came as one of the guests and tells the story about the first time he heard Julius play and how he just 
could not believe. He said it was like a combination of Lionel Hampton and uh, Milt Jackson, and he just, you know, at 17, Julius was that good. Mm. And by the way, Herb Alpert played Spanish Flea live that night for the first time in like 20 years. Yeah, it was. Really? Yes. I, I've heard that he doesn't like to play his old stuff. He's got a jazz combo now, but he doesn't He doesn't like to play the old stuff, which I think he should probably do. He could probably get some I've always thought so. Always thought. What a special night that yeah. was. I know we're jumping way ahead now, obviously, but... I think there were close to 1,200, 1,000 to 1,200 people. Really? Um, every one of the great musicians in Los Angeles that knew my dad played. And what we went through every era of his uh, musical career, some of the plays he had written with my mom and some of those folks were there. That was uh, a... Uh, he, sure. wrote, he wrote plays, too? He wrote the, the actual play of, of one and, and uh, music for others. Wow! See all of this stuff. I, I I'm yeah, he just multi-talented, and I probably have an extra copy that I can give you today. Wow! And my mom, by the way, wrote the lyrics for those songs. Did you? I did. Fantastic! I, this is fantastic. Including Spanish Flea, which was our big. Hit. I didn't know there were lyrics to that. Yes, there are. Would you like people. to hear them? Yes, <laughs> I would well, love I'm to hear the lyrics. For you, I'm not going to sing them. Okay. But um, I'll give you a copy of. Uh, of um, Homer Simpson singing the lyrics. Oh, well, he only sang a little bit of it. He wow. He's the most famous person nowadays that right. is associated with it. There were probably over 60 versions of um, Spanish Flea, out of which maybe 10 had lyrics. Mm -hmm. And they were, there were some famous people, Teresa Brewer and the Modern Airs and Frankie Randall. There were some good lyric versions. But the lyrics came out way after. I mm. mean, if a lyric version had come out in the beginning, it might have stood a chance. But Herb's is still, you know, I would say 90% of the sales are because of Herb's. That's, that's the classic sound, yeah. Right. But everyone from the Boston Pops, Mondovani, um, Ferranti and Teicher, I mean, everyone recorded it. It was... Well, Spanish Flea was by far the most popular song my father wrote, the most mm -hmm. successful song. And uh, it was also used as uh, the theme song for the dating game. Right. <clears throat> One of the theme songs mm -hmm. on the dating game. So I think that's that helped Definitely. put it in everybody's mind. And that and since then, it's it's used in movies and TV shows. That you keep every year or two. It seems like somebody digs it up and sticks Including it. Including this year, I don't know whether you saw it. It was a big movie. Um, White House Down. White House Down. Mm -mm. You well, you have to go see that movie or rent it. It's probably okay. not playing now. It plays a key role in the movie. Really? Spanish Flea has a key role in the movie. But like David said, I mean, it has been used throughout the years, fortunately for me, um, in so many big movies. It was in Striptease, it was in Beverly Hills Cop 2, um, just. The Simpsons. The several Simpsons, times. Several times. One of my favorite uh, ways to describe how Spanish Flea has lived is that our generation, my generation, thinks of Herb Albert. You, you hear the song and you immediately connect with Herb Albert. And the kids, my kids' generation, recognize it from the dating game. And when my grandchildren tell their friends that their, his, their grandfather wrote Spanish Flea and they hum a little bit, they say, oh, from The Simpsons. <laughs> it was on five, five episodes of The Simpsons, which is pretty amazing. I didn't realize that, really. It was a little Spanish Flea, a record star, Tony B. He heard of singers like Beatles, the Chipmunks, he's seen on TV. Why not a little Spanish Flea? And I'm just compelled to go back to the um, Herb's first time in 20 years playing it live in front of all those folks with the very, very strong support of his second trumpet, a man named Bobby Finley, who's arguably the best trumpet player in the world. I really think so. I, uh, I loved trumpet, and I started playing it because of Herb Alpert. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I would, when we'd go on the road, Bobby would take me under his wings and give me lessons, and just nice. phenomenal trumpet player. 
Now you you were uh, you were like a tour assistant or roadie or I was the roadie when my dad put the Baja back together. I know we have, we haven't even climbed up to the start of the Baja phase mm-hmm. one, but um, they played for a number of years, and then my dad decided he wanted to take a rest for a while, and then when he um, put the Baja back together for the second tour it was 1980 or 81, and yes, I went out as the roadie uh, for two or three years, maybe a few months out of each year. I was 21, right before I got married to Hallie, maybe I was 22, and it was fantastic experience. One of the most fun and rewarding experiences, and getting a chance to travel with those guys, mm-hmm. and at that point I was thinking about it just a little while ago, that um, one of the things that was unique about it is it was a combination of band members from the original band, guys, you know, have been playing, like Frank DeVito, who's the drummer, who's Frankie, uh, what was the big band that he, he backed up? Anyway, guys from that era who mm-hmm. were fantastic musicians, and then half guys who were brand new, guys who were 23-year-old guitar player named Kim Stallings, a guy named Eddie Rossetti, who was a drummer, really cool guy, great drummer, who tried out for Frank Zappa, and so it was a really eclectic combination of guys that, just from a human perspective as well as a musical perspective, second mm. time around. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> it really was. benefit concert we're talking about was to benefit the Tourette Syndrome Association because my father had Tourette Syndrome. Really? Which, uh, and and not the most extreme case, but mm-hmm. not the most mild case either. So he had vocal tics that were very, he, could, he, he mostly could not control. Mm-hmm. But somehow when he performed, he was able to concentrate enough to suppress them. And, and at the time, people, it hadn't been diagnosed. People didn't really know what Tourette syndrome was. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's just, it was part of who he was. And he was so talented and funny and lovable that everybody accepted it with him. Mm-hmm. And he was able to control them even in the studio where you had to be absolutely silent when right. you weren't playing. And then um, after his uh, musical career, tapered off, he went back to school and uh, got a degree as a, uh, to become a therapist. And one of, the, one of the things he wanted to do was to help other people with Tourette Syndrome. And he became involved with the, uh, the Tourette Syndrome Association's national chapter as the vice president of the association. So that's, and when, after my dad passed away, the, the director of that association suggested that um, we put on a, a benefit concert partly to raise money but mostly just as a tribute to him and his work for the organization. Sounds like he never sat still. <laughs> he was always um, doing something. He had some years when he wasn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. It was He retired way too early. I mean the band was at its height mm-hmm. when he retired and circumstances just led him to choose to do that. He was probably 32, 33 years old. Really? Mm-hmm. They had nine months of bookings that they canceled. So there were how many years ago. after that did he go back to school and uh, to become well, a therapist? Let's see. Uh, Almost 30 years later. To, really? Yeah. Well, what happened was, to give you the, the uh, timeline, <laughs> so from around 1961, Till 65 he was playing, or 66, he was playing in all the studio gigs Mm -hmm. for all these records, these hit records, and a lot of records that weren't hits. Mm -hmm. And then, um, starting in the mid-60s, became involved in the Tijuana Brass, but played on every record, but was not part of the traveling band. And uh, even though you'll hear marimba on almost every tune in the recordings, when Herb went on the road, he only had a band of seven guys, no marimba. 
Really? Is it, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I would think he would have had a huge touring group. I know. Wow. Seven. Wow, it was bigger. It was nine. Yeah. But then, so then, in the mid to late '60s, is when uh, Herb suggested that my father had up his own version of Latin music, and he formed the Baja Marimba Band, which started out as just a recording um, group, mm-hmm. and there wasn't even really a band. He just called all his friends from the Wrecking Crew to come play his arrangements, and they hired people to pose for the album cover. And, I mean, in those days, you know, it's like, it was, it was different groups, Uh you know, there is like, you know, the monkeys didn't play their own instruments. Mm -hmm. It it was like the recording was one thing. And then the act for the public was another. So as their albums became popular and they had a couple of pretty strong selling records, then they decided that he should take the band on the road. So then he formed a traveling band of nine guys, including himself, two marimbas uh, included. And uh, and then for a few years, which were amazing times because my brother and I, my mom, would get to travel with him. Mm-hmm. Um, they went all over the country as first an opening act for everyone from Jack Benny uh, in, in um, Las Vegas. Uh-huh. They opened for the Smothers Brothers, including back in Hawaii they played opening act for the Smothers Brothers Wayne Newton um, and then they played on dozens of TV shows the Hollywood Palace and the Jerry Lewis show and the Tonight Show Ed Sullivan and uh, their group became known not only for the music but for their entertainment value because they put on a show Mm -hmm. What, what are you going to do now? Well, we thought we'd go home. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You guys are going to do another number. Well, how about Fiddler on the Roof? Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. I don't know how to tell you this, Julius, but uh, Fiddler on the Roof happens to be my favorite song. Really? Really. I wish it was one of ours. <laughs> actually originally hired Bill Dana, who was the original Jose Jimenez, who was a, a, a very uh, well-known comic at mm-hmm. the time, to write a show for them. And, at, and soon after that, my father and some of the funnier guys in the band began adding to it. And soon they had a 90-minute show that was as much comedy as it was music. And they had great lighting cues and interplay with the audience and shtick and fights with drumsticks. I mean, it was like Spike Jones and or the, or the Nitwits. Yeah. So they did really well doing concerts. And that was probably from the late 60s to maybe the early 70s, and which is about when my dad went into retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, years went by during which, you know, he would write songs still for Herb Alpert collaborated with my mom and some plays they mm-hmm. they tried to get going a couple of which were produced locally in LA mm-hmm. and then um, uh, ultimately though first uh, was it Herb first put his band back together because Herb Alpert's band he, he retired mm-hmm. or stopped with the Tijuana Brass so then he decided to put a band together to go on the road again now we're talking about the 1975 no, it had to be. Now, I think Jerry's right. Yeah. It's the late 70s. Colorado Springs with Alan Carr. It was 17 years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so anyway, so Herb decided, okay, he's going to put the band, his band back together because they had got, taken a break. This time he did ask my father to travel with him. Mm-hmm. So they did travel the world with the Tijuana Brass playing in the late 70s. Um, and then after that, my father decided in the late 70s and early 80s 
to put the Baham Rebbe band back together, uh, during which time that's when Jerry went on the road with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one other interesting thing he did in 1980, my father, was he scored a movie that I co-directed for Disney called Midnight Madness, which was uh, a youth comedy, mm -hmm. kind of... Um, in, in kind of like Disney's answer to the anim to Animal House. Okay, it came out in 1980. So, uh, so my dad was able to add one more thing to his belt notch. You know that he he scored a a, a major studio movie. Wow, that's and, impressive. And, and that, you said he also wrote other songs for other pop groups too, right? Uh, well, Spanish Flea was recorded, was covered mm -hmm. by a lot of other groups, um, both uh, instrumentally and with lyrics. But there weren't that many that he wrote original songs for. The only one, really, that I that you would be interested in because it's a space age lounge mm -hmm. pop was The, the Ventures. Ventures. Yeah. He wrote Moonchild. Right. Because Leon Russell was in the Wrecking Crew, he was a keyboard player, piano, mm -hmm. in all those same records. Yes. Like Gary Lewis and the Playboys they played on together, and Glenn Campbell was a guitar player mm -hmm. in those days. And uh, so I guess Leon remembered Dad in the '80s and or '70s. And, and you know, by the way, we're bouncing all over the place at this point. You'll figure out what you want to keep in, but uh, all these memories. Um, Herb was. I didn't know him real well as well as my mom did, but what a nice guy. I had met him a few times, and all of a sudden, I was 17 years old, and my dad said, oh, Herb Alpert called, he wants you to call him. He was at you know A&M uh, Records in, in the studio, which was getting pretty big by then. Mm -hmm. And he said, come on in, I want, you know, just want to talk to you. And he asked me how I'm doing, you know, do I have a girlfriend, what am I into, do I smoke pot, different things. <laughs> and then he said, by the way, how would you like to, uh, you know, what would you like to do with your future? And he said, how would you like to come and um, be a sound recording engineer apprentice? And from what I remember and understand, there were 200 guys waiting for that job. Yeah. Didn't appreciate that at the time. <laughs> I took the job, I did it for two or three weeks early morning setting up microphones I just didn't see it and I didn't have the future in mind at that point but he gave me that opportunity there's a lot of grunt work in that isn't there there is but yeah. it would, you know would have gotten me into a pretty cool industry yeah wow yeah who gets invited to become an engineer apprentice by Herb Alper yeah that was great and then just you know one other set of memories during the um, second time around with the Baja the first gig was at Fairmont Hotel in New Orleans, the Blue Room, mm -hmm. following Ella Fitzgerald. Got to Ugh. meet Ella Fitzgerald and hear her. Um, and, and on Bourbon Street, Al Hurt had a club, and all, half of the guys knew Al Hurt, mm -hmm. and uh, I got to meet Al Hurt in the m -turn. Just such a bizarre combination of jobs that they got, for anywhere from four or five days there to two or three weeks straight of touring the Midwest doing state fairs, mm -hmm. to four weeks in Minnesota at some big concert house, I can't remember the name right now, to back to Hawaii for five or six days for some private company had a convention and they, they loved the Bahamarimba band. Wow. And that as a roadie was very um, easy because I set this the stuff up on all the equipment and all the uniforms and I'd wash the uniforms and set it up on stage and that was it for the week. You know, then just uh, make sure the mallets are in the right place or whatever. But all the other stuff, talk about um, interesting and, and a lot of work is going from what, night to night to state fairs, breaking down all the amps and, and uh, loading up the truck and driving to the next state. What a great time that was. Oh, I wanted to tell you about uh, <clears throat> one of my fun memories. It, it was probably 
after Martin Denny when when Dad was playing in the studios. But I remember him showing us how to make some of those instruments, those kind of exotic percussion mm-hmm. instruments. And I'm sure you know that know them, but I don't know if all your listeners would. But uh, for example, the the guiro and the mm-hmm. gord, gordo, I think it's called. But both of them. You know, the guiro is that great sound. It's it, it's everything from mariachi or Mexican music yeah. to exotica. Somehow, I don't know. It's that classic. It's funny because it's a real cha-cha thing, you know. The but everybody who knows exotica associates that's the sound. The guiro. If you're mm-hmm. going to have an exotica yeah. tune, you got to have that. Yeah. yeah, Quiet Village. Quiet Village. You know, Martin Denny started a lot of songs with that. Right. With that sound. Well... They used to make those out of literally gourds mm-hmm. that I don't know where they got the gourds, but they would dry them out and then carve uh, grooves mm-hmm. in them and then use a stick or something. And that's before I mean, the dad had those in his case. And then there was another one called the what was it called? The emu or the ipu? Ipu, the, the ipu which is the gourd, the big gourd that you hit with yeah. your. Uh, you see them, you know, they're three hundred dollars in a percussion shop made out of wood and lacquered, mm-hmm. and but the real ones were made out of natural elements. And then the other one I remember is the jawbone, which uh, literally was a jawbone from some animal, an and ass. the teeth it from the, the donkey, yeah. yeah. Family the jawbone of an ass. <laughs> it really was. It was. <laughs> and they would hit it, and the teeth would rattle, and you know now it's this mechanical thing that. But um, that, that was the real stuff that he learned. You know, I, I haven't remembered in 40 years, but I, I can remember the smell of that gourd. Really? Absolutely. There's a little bit of a clip in the um, concert tape of Martin Denny Group playing for the, on the Dinosaur Show. No. Marty, unfortunately, couldn't make the trip. He was going to, and he wasn't quite well enough, but we did have a friend who was going to be in Hawaii at the time who recorded, went over to his apartment and recorded an interview. It was very touching. Oh, and nice. wonderful things to say about Julius. So in the 90s, that's when Dad went back to school and began to pursue life or work as a therapist. And at that same time, he began playing music again just for fun mm-hmm. and formed a little group called the Baja Marimbas. And then at one time, I think there was a group called Baja 88, mm-hmm. which I guess was in 1988. But anyway, they played jazz. It was a garage band mm-hmm. in his in, when he was in his 50s with just some his, of his favorite musician friends. And, uh, they, and they really went back to his roots of jazz. And so uh, they, um, you know, they, they actually did release a couple of CDs. Which, well, they did. Uh, Just, uh, this was news to me, but because when, when I was getting ready to, to do this, I looked up um, on one of those old Martin Denny albums, Jerry Williams is listed as a musician, which I didn't realize. I don't know where or how he would have played it, but... Well, they were always recorded here. The albums? All the albums were recorded here, Liberty Records. Oh. I'm, I'm almost positive that they were all recorded. Well, all yeah, I think I heard that most... Mm-hmm. All of them were recorded in L.A., not in Hawaii. <laughs> well, he was a drummer who also was the best man at my dad's wedding because he went to high school. So all those guys, John like... William's brother. And he's brother of John Williams. Oh, the John Williams. Yes. The John Williams. I'll tell you an interesting John Williams story. You know, I, I, obviously he's a genius, mm-hmm. but to become that successful, you're not only a genius, but you're, like, driven or very... Discipline, yeah. ambitious, all that. So, John Williams' younger brother Jerry was a drummer and a high school best friend of my father. Mm-hmm. And um, 
my dad, when, after John Williams became so successful, my dad said he wasn't surprised because he said that on, on like Saturdays, my dad would go over to the Williams house to pick up Jerry to, to go out and drink beer and pick up girls. And, you know, and John Williams would be in his bathrobe playing the piano, writing a concerto <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon. And I guess it paid off for him. I, yeah, well, I would say it paid off. You're forgetting the end of the story. They would come back after 10 hours and John would still be sitting in his bathrobe, ashtray filled with cigarettes. He never, I mean, he was absolutely a devoted musician, no yeah. question. Worked out okay. Their father, yeah, their father was also a drummer, and his younger <laughs> brother also was a percussionist, Donald Williams. Oh, yes, All of them, the right. whole family. Wow. You know something that was so much fun, um, besides you know the, the love of the music, but the camaraderie of the guys mm -hmm. on the road with, with each other and with other artists? Um, I always loved that as a kid, and as I was a you know, young adult traveling with the band. Just a couple quick stories. I remember, um, like the guitar player and the uh, drummer for the band had played in big bands, and they, you know, back then a bunch of folks. There's a small world, knew each other and played with each other. Anyway, they knew Cheetah Rivera, and uh, they were opening for her wherever this was, and there was an orchestra pit, <laughs> and they decided on the last night, on closing night. Baja opened for Cheetah Rivera, and they decided, so when she came out for her last performance, they all the guys were sitting in the orchestra pit in their underwear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hope there's that same kind of camaraderie on the road these days. I don't know if that's uh, specific to that era or not, but it was so funny. And then just one other time, my brother mentioned all the comedy that they had in their show. And one of the things was that Frank DeVito, the uh, drummer, was hysterical. He would go off out of control in a drum solo that broke up the whole song, and all the guys would leave. And uh, near the end, my dad would come and stop him. And, um, and then Frank would start doing like a tomahawk dance, and it would start to rain. And uh, somehow one of the last things that would happen is Frank would take a big sip of water and spit it out at my dad. Well, the last night of the performance in Minnesota, the guys decided to fill the glass with vodka, pure oh vodka. <laughs> and not tell Frank? Yeah, not no. tell Frank. And I waited all night, you know, as a roadie sitting back there waiting for to see that happen. <laughs> so much fun. And that's just two stories. I mean, it was all day long. They were uh, uh, musicians generally have great senses of humor, and they were very funny guys. I just want to also just explain one more. Uh, 1957, so Dad was 22, and he um, formed a, a group called the Julius Wechter Quintet, or Quartet. Quartet. And recorded a jazz album called Linear Sketches. This would be right before he went into Martin right. Denny? Right, before mm -hmm. Martin Denny. There's a lot of original tunes, a really good sax player. Who was this? Cy Colley. He was wonderful. Yeah. Jimmy Bates on bass. It, it was, I guess maybe it was five, because Al Marlowe was on piano, so that Quintet. would be five. Really hip jazz. talked about many chapters that you didn't know about my dad, but did you know that he was a singer for maybe two performances? No. <laughs> he decided also to sing This Guy's In Love With You on Steel Pier. No, the, that's yeah. not what he sang. No, he sang I Don't Want to Walk Without oh, You. Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. 
and, and, it's, with and you. it's recorded, <laughs> and he did a really nice job really? on it too. It sounds wonderful. He did it for two or three days, and he, it made him nervous. He uh, didn't like doing it live. Yeah. So it was just, because Herb had such a big hit with the vocal that they thought, well, okay, Julius, you try. Let's see, you know, or whoever's idea it was. Well, actually, the Baja Marimba band did record one of my songs with lyrics. Um, Frank DeVito, the drummer, sang it. It's called Wall Street Rag. It's really cute. It's a really cute song. That whole era was so cool, and it's so, so great to have memories of getting to see some of these people perform live and meet them. Other names I can remember now, the Supremes, mm -hmm. and Jose Feliciano. That they that the band uh, either played with for, or opened open for, for, or yeah. Oh yeah, they were huge. Yeah. Huge opening act for so many. Very exciting times. Yeah. So I guess Marty was always a headliner. I don't remember uh, <clears throat> him ever being an opening act for anyone else. But smaller venues, probably. Smaller venues, definitely. But they certainly made a lot of money on the records. Yeah, for the Martin Denny records, he, he would get all the profit. The guys would get, what, $100 to play on the record date. Exactly. And that was it. They just got gig money, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. David and I have done a few interviews with uh, people, mostly about, not the Martin Denny phase, but the Tula Brass or Baja phase. And uh, the fact that Dad was in on the beginning of Exotica and the beginning of the Tijuana Brass. I mean, he's the only person in the world that was in on both of those sounds and contributed so greatly to them. Yeah. Also, another trivia thing, but um, Exotica was the album that had Quiet Village on mm -hmm. it, but it was in mono. Mm -hmm. And then when Stereo came out, they, act, they actually re-recorded the whole album, and so Arthur Lyman is on the mono album, and Dad's uh -huh. on the... Stereo album. Oh, oh really? He's Very so interesting. So, it's not the same people on each version. No. So depending what record you play, it's a different. I didn't know that. See, I now play. that's something I didn't know. I knew that they went in and re-recorded it. Yeah. I had always assumed that they had recorded them back to back. No, because stereo became such a big thing. They knew they could sell to more people, but I guess Arthur Lyman had left the group by then. Yeah. Probably on the the actual liner notes or the album jacket, they don't they don't even say that mm -hmm. because again they were they didn't really want the public to know what was going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it may not even be listed that way. But that's fascinating. See now, uh, I want to go listen check to that out. Yeah. yeah, just listen. I'm, I'm going to and just listen yeah, to the vibes. Definitely. The, what was the last album he played on with, with Martin Denny? It would have had to have been what? Well, he may have continued to play on the records because they were recorded they were here hmm. after 50, uh, let's see if Jerry was one in 58. So you started school in 61, right? So that would be the last road trip, but um, he could very well be on the later albums. Well, I had a wonderful afternoon with the Wechter family, and I want to send my heartfelt thank you, mahalo, to Sissy, Jerry, and David for that wonderful interview. I know you're listening. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed hearing it back as much as I enjoyed uh, recording it with you. It was a lot of fun. There were so many great stories, and even some of them I, I just couldn't get to. One of them I did want to relate to you. One thing that I had never really noticed, but I, I wanted to, to share this with all of you. Uh, if you look at every cover of Baja Marimba Band album, there's one guy with his back to the camera. It looks like he's peeing. That is a, is a little joke 
that um, Julius and the uh, Bahamarim band folks played. Uh, that's a, a running gag in every album. I thought that was a lot of fun. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to all of these stories. I know I really enjoyed them. I really hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed this visit to the Quiet Village as much as I did. My Mai Tai is obviously empty. It's been empty some time ago as we went a little overtime. So that means we've come to the end of another visit here at the Quiet Village. Until next time, I want to remind you that you can visit the Quiet Village at any time simply by going to digitiki.com where you can listen to Quiet Village Radio streaming 24-7 on your computer, iPad, iPhone, smartphone, Android, you name it. Also, you can get a complete rundown of the songs on this and all pasts, past podcasts. So, until next time, I'm going to leave you now with the most appropriate song there could be. Julius Wechter's arguably his biggest hit, most well-known. Here is Herb Alpert and his Tijuana Brass, most likely with Julius on the marimba, playing Spanish Flea. Until next time, everyone, aloha. Aloha.